welcome to the F1 Strategy Report for Formula Legend. On this week's edition, the British Grand Prix, Max Verstappen gets on the podium again. But what is the deal with Formula One's radio rules? That's all to come in this edition of the Strategy Report. My name's Michael Amanado. We're in a pub. It's a different kind of episode. It's a live on location episode. I'm a bit excited. Will it work? Will it won't? I'm not sure. But joining me, friend of the show, I think we can call him now, considering you've been on once before, Luke Smith from NBC Sports. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's good to have you on the show. It's the British Grand Prix. It's one of the big races of the year. First of all, I want to know, how much does the United Kingdom get behind this race? I mean, it's, it's, it's a little bit foreign to a lot of people who have races in other countries to see how much support there is. Yeah, it's quite interesting, I think, to see the support that the race gets. You see other races, like went to Baku, for example, mm-hmm. and the turnout wasn't that great. And even other races, such as Germany, had struggles in recent years, Spa mm-hmm. the same. Silverstone never has that problem. You always get sort of 110, 120,000 fans through the gates. I think this year was a record crowd over the past sort of 15 mm-hmm. years or so. Uh, and it's really fantastic to see. We've got a British driver on top of the world, of course, but uh-huh. uh, can rain or shine, the fans are out. It's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. And there was both of those things, rain and shine, also fans, who were out. <laughs> and that really made this race. So let's start from the fact that the race started really wet. Like, it rained a heap for a short period of time, but really quite heavily right before the race. In fact, I think Lewis said on his formation lap, he went out completely dry, sit on the grid, the rain came down, because that really decided this race. We've got our chart in front of us. We're going to be referring to this chart, this lap chart, for a while. Originally, most people, let's assume, were going to start on the soft tyre. Certainly the top 10 were. And that was going to be the major decider of this race, because it was so delicate, the soft tyre's never been to Silverstone before. But it rained and everyone had to start on the ultra-wet tyres, if we can call them that. I mean, there's been a lot of complaints about the, uh, these these wet tyres, haven't there been? I think Vettel said they're only good for staying behind the safety yeah. car. Yeah, it's weird that they don't actually seem to race on them. That every mm. time there's enough rain for there to be full wet tyres, there's also enough rain for the safety car. So mm. it's, it's a real... Uh, fine balance and they've got to strike but mm. uh, yeah the wet tyres you haven't seen them really be used in anger well I can't really remember the last yeah. time to be honest it's always the intermediate and all by mm. the time they've used the wets enough it's alright for intermediates mm-hmm. so um, yeah it's it's interesting I think they made the right decision to start under the safety car mm-hmm. but I think it would have been good to see a few laps at least of racing on the full wet tyre yeah because we saw a bit in Monaco didn't we because that also started behind the safety mm. car but I guess Monaco is a very unique circuit it's yeah. slow and it's not so abrasive so because I briefly thought that they'd been working because they redesigned them over the summer, didn't they? And everyone thought, oh, they did a good job. Mm. Maybe not as good a job. <laughs> but those laps behind the safety car, it was about five, wasn't it? At the end of lap five, yeah. the safety car came in. They sort of started to shape the race because, as you said, they all changed to intermediates after that, which, which sort of eliminated that first moment of strategy when you was going to go from intermediate and then possibly, essentially, a one-stop from intermediate to the rest. But we saw so much action at that first part and that really defined the race because we saw the order shaken up completely Completely, and I think critical to that uh, was the fact that Daniel Ricciardo in these pit stops completely fell down. We had just the top three drivers racing pretty yeah. much. Everyone else sort of shook it out and we got this this battle. I mean, how much do you feel, given what we saw in qualifying, there could have been potential for more of a race, given the wet conditions and given the Red Bull car seemed quite close to Mercedes? Yeah, I think if we'd have released a little bit earlier, we probably would have seen more of a battle between mm-hmm. Rebel and Merck at the front. I think it was a, a shame we didn't get the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, by the time 
the safety car peeled in, it was time for intermediate. So it was automatically not a case of going wheel to wheel and thinking, I've got to get past this guy. Mm-hmm. It was instead, okay, when are we going to come in and make the switch to the Inters? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that really denied us of a race. Then with the virtual safety car coming out, that uh, mm-hmm. timing really sort of hit Ricardo hard, pushed Perez up into fourth place. Mm-hmm. But that kind of did set the tone. They had this top three... Hamilton, Rosberg, Verstappen at the front. They just broke away, and mm-hmm. and that was it. And then we got the racing between them on the intermediate tie, which mm-hmm. was great. But uh, it'd have been nice to see that a bit earlier when everyone was bunched together. Yeah. Now, one of the defining, other than pit stops, because they ultimately defined the whole race. But one of the defining moments for that top three battle was, of course, Rosberg versus Verstappen. That was almost all the racing we had. Let's <laughs> be honest. But Verstappen's pass on Rosberg out of Beckett's. I'm not great with the names of the corners. Out of Beckett's yeah. into Chapel, yeah, I think well, is what I'm saying. Very good. Oh, I'm learning. I've been here. <laughs> five days and it's great <laughs> how good a move was that oh, it was amazing it was it was opportunistic it was plucky it was cocky it's everything you expect a teenager to do it was brilliant it's what it's why we love Max Verstappen he's mm-hmm. come on the scene he's pulling off moves that he's probably tried in his video games at home <laughs> and um, and he's making them work and making them stick and it was it was very audacious and I think most drivers because Rosberg made a mistake going through the Magus Beckett's complex mm-hmm. most drivers would have just sit, sat tight and thought okay I'll get him in stow at the end of the hangar straight not Verstappen no, just, <laughs> around the outside amazing move so good to see I like his response was essentially well it was wet and there was more grip on the inside <laughs> and everyone's like of course why didn't, why didn't I try that it would have made so much sense but as a result Rosberg was stuck behind Verstappen essentially because the drier the track got the better the Mercedes car became relative to the Red Bull mm. but before we get to that move back that Rosberg eventually took Verstappen it's something that's becoming a trend as much as two wet races I think we've had can be called a trend that Rosberg in the wet is just not very good there's no other way to put it is it he struggled so much in Monaco in the rain again in Silverstone he was nowhere the gap to Hamilton was a bit deceiving because he he pretty much managed the whole race in terms of engine wear because I think this is his second last or last Mm. power unit so he did really well to manage that engine but Rosberg I mean I don't know what is this something we've learnt about Rosberg over years I don't remember him always being so bad in the wet I don't remember him being that great in the wet either to be Mm. honest you look back I think the one that really sticks in my mind is Hungary 2014 and that was the real turning point I think in his relationship with Lewis mm-hmm. and he struggled so much in that race that Lewis started at the back and he still beat yeah. Rosberg um, and I think maybe we're seeing sort of cracks of that come through we went for quite a while without mm-hmm. a really wet race and now we've had two in quick succession and in both of them Nico's looked really weak and just nowhere near Lewis Lewis has seemed mm-hmm. like well miles ahead it's been really really quite I think concerning for Rosberg and mm-hmm. he's really just got to hope that Hungary and Germany two races that rain could strike again that it doesn't mm-hmm. absolutely and it's it's I mean, it can only be more painful that it was a teenager who did it to him, <laughs> really, if we think about that, that, you know, to struggle so much in the wet and get passed by a car that no one thought would be second fastest by this point in the season must hammer home to Mercedes a little bit. As much as Mercedes has been saying they knew that there'd be competition this year, that they are being hunted, but also for Red Bull, who started this year so pessimistically, I mean... You know, had Hamilton not been so imperious this weekend, potentially it could have been more than just a podium for Verstappen. Mm. Uh, yeah, it was a massively impressive display from both mm-hmm. Verstappen and Red Bull. Again, the team has, as you say, started the season doom and gloom, oh, Renault mm-hmm. engine again, and a new name on it really wasn't going to change yeah. much, didn't <laughs> think. And Renault have got everything right this year. Red Bull have made a huge step forwards as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I think in the four races, four or five races since Verstappen joined Red Bull, only Hamilton scored more points than him in the championship. Mm. He's, he's on an absolute run, and uh, 
yeah, I think it does hit home to Mercedes that they can't rest on the laurels. And that's why mm. instances such as the one we saw in Austria are all the more important to iron out and make sure they don't happen mm. again. Because uh, sooner or later, Red Bull are going to be that much closer, mm. whereby if you make even a slight error, they're going to pounce and take the race win. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a good dynamic to the championship going forward, definitely. Mm. So let's talk about Daniel Ricciardo now because he was the other, I guess, missing element from what would have been a strategic battle at the front because he was not able to reach the top three because of that virtual safety car in the switch to inters to mediums. He completely lost out. I think he lost 10 or more seconds because of the fact everyone was driving slowly for his, not for his stop rather, for everyone else's stop. It must be hurting Daniel Ricciardo at this point. In fact, I was in the paddock for this race and I was being made a lot of fun of by Olaf Moll, the <laughs> Dutch commentator, very much, on, uh, very much using country lines there to make fun of me, saying... But in honesty, I won't admit this to him, but he must be true because after the races since Verstappen's joined Red Bull Racing... He's not wasted any time, has he? We've all been saying, oh, you know, it'll take some races to get used to. No, it took, well, literally took no races <laughs> yeah. to get used to. He won the first one. But as much as Ricardo's had some poor luck, the fact of the matter is Verstappen's heavily outscored him since joining. Yeah, and that is something that for all the smiles and all the, oh, it's mm. okay, he'll know. And he'll be really, really dwelling on, I think. And I think going forward, I don't want to... I don't want to tempt fate or anything like that, but <laughs> he's got to be careful not to slip into sort of the Mark Webber mm-hmm. role or the Mark Webber mentality because ultimately Verstappen, much as Vettel was Red Bull's favourite son and Marco's favourite son, mm-hmm. I think Verstappen is on the same kind of length. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Ricardo is in a... He's got a different mindset and a different approach to Webber, so I think mm-hmm. he'll handle it better. But at the same point, yeah, we all thought, well, give Verstappen sort of four or five races to get used to it. Yeah. Ricardo will still lead Red Bull. But now we're getting to the point where you're thinking, well, there isn't really enough number one driver in that team mm. and uh, I think most expected the status quo to at least remain for a season maybe even more mm-hmm. um, with Ricardo leading the charge and Verstappen being his backup but uh, that seems to have flipped a little bit which is yeah. incredible it's really strange to think isn't it because it's, it's completely changed the dynamic inside Red Bull Racing mm. a lot of people said they seemed refreshed when Verstappen joined partly because of the hype around it that's what Red Bull loves the <laughs> hype around their team but the concept of it changing the dynamic in terms of drivers is something I think not a lot of people really considered, mm. even though we all know Verstappen's so good. And how that plays out in terms of, as you said, the number one driver role, who gets preferential strategies, usually it's just whoever qualifies ahead. But mm. I thought it was interesting when Mark Webb used to talk about Sebastian Vettel having an emotional advantage over the team. Yeah. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, yeah. but I guess that's a discussion for another day. <laughs> so I want to talk about the team that wasn't challenging Mercedes. I mean, there were a lot of them, but Ferrari in particular wasn't challenging Mercedes. You talk to anyone at Ferrari, and they're still saying the championship's on. Is it on, Luke? No, and I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why they keep saying it is, yeah. because it really just isn't. And uh, <laughs> I think... Yeah, we've sort of slipped back into pre-2015 mm. Ferrari mode, where it's all that, oh, we're going to be more competitive, we're going to be better. And we've not really seen any big, big step forwards. Canada was probably the closest we've got, and it was, mm-hmm. oh, okay, well, they can challenge Mercedes. But then since then, they've they've not really been close. It's been, uh, yeah, Red Bull have made this big step forward, and I don't think anyone expected it. I think we mm-hmm. thought it would be Mercedes versus Ferrari for the title. If Mercedes have the same kind of advantage as 2015, which they do, mm-hmm. um, then Ferrari will have an easy second, couple of race wins, maybe. And that isn't the case. Red Bull are right with them. Um, Mauricio Arriva Bene was asked in uh, Friday press conference about the gap um, Mm -hmm. ahead to both Mercedes and Red Bull and he went no 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 Red Bull's behind us and you're kind of thinking are they though really it's it's um it's something they've got to be careful of because mm-hmm. Ferrari, they've been weak on a number of occasions this year and Silverstone was a, a new low. We thought Vettel starting 11th, okay, he can fight his way up the order. 
he got ninth in the end. Mm. So uh, yeah, they've they've got a lot of work to do at Maranello, definitely. Mm. Vettel was one of the men who could have made a bit of a strategic difference because he stopped first for mediums, I think it was, or at very least very very early. He was the Jensen Button of the race, <laughs> if you like, and he got it spot on. He got the the crossover exactly right and was able to take advantage of that. Jumped a few places, but. Unfortunately for him and unfortunately for Ferrari, this was his, I don't know, annual bad race. Because he has them from time to time. The last one I remember distinctly, I guess, was Mexico last year. Mm. He was sort of a bit nowhere. What do we make of this? Because Vettel's normally so consistent. But the fact that he had the opportunity to make up a lot of points by getting that switch exactly right was squandered by the fact he just, I don't know, to use Hamilton's language, wasn't feeling it. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Uh, yeah, and as you say, Vettel does have sort of this once-a-year occasion mm. where he'll make a mistake, and that was his big sort of, uh, the big thing that impressed Ferrari mm. when he joined, was that he just never made mistakes. He was so consistent, mm. so flawless, and uh, he just wasn't a Silverson. It was really quite fascinating to see him throw away mm. a really big opportunity, because as you say, he made that switch early, had the jump on everyone else, his sectors lit up purple, and everyone said, right, it's time to change then and uh, threw away a good, good chance to make up some more positions because it mm. was sort of this cluster from, say, Perez downwards once he fell behind Ricardo. The, the positions were already up for grabs. We saw Raikkonen mm. fight his way past towards the end and, uh, yeah, Vettel really should have been up there with them but just one little error and uh, threw it all away. I'm going to call this long-term championship strategy to keep it on brief for the strategy <laughs> report. Raikkonen was re-signed this week. Ironically enough, considering everyone said, oh, that's terrible, outraced uh, Vettel, a qualified Vettel, did just generally a better performance, other than the fact his qualifying was kind of messy. We'll <laughs> overlook that because we're only talking about two drivers, so in another sense, he did really well. What's your, I mean, what's your take, A, on that? And do you believe Ferrari should have re-signed Raikkonen? Uh, yes, I do. I think it was the sensible option purely because I don't think there are any available drivers mm-hmm. out there who could do a better job than Kimi Raikkonen. And I think people kind of get caught up on the Raikkonen we, re- we remember when he joined and he mm-hmm. done like 10 races in Formula Renault and everyone like, you're not ready. And then he just blew <laughs> everyone away. Um, with McLaren, he was amazing. I think 2005 was probably his finest year in F1, won the cycle mm-hmm. in 07. And I think everyone kind of expects that, oh, Raikkonen, to come back and ultimately mm. that was nearly 10 years ago now time's changed yeah. and uh, that's not Kimi anymore Kimi's sort of towards the end of his career he knows that but he's still delivering good results and ultimately yeah I don't know of any other driver that could actually do the same job as him he knows the pressure of racing for Ferrari which is probably mm-hmm. the biggest thing you put a Grosjean or a Perez into that team and I think that's happened with Perez and McLaren. It'll be that, oh my God, I'm driving for Ferrari. Mm-hmm. And it might go to the head, the pressure becomes immense. And uh, Kimi, he knows that. He's done 100 races now for the team and he just can get on with mm. it. So, uh, yeah, I think he's the right option. And he's the number two. And he likes mm. that. He's fine with that. Um, him and Seb get on. And that's what Ferrari need right now. He's comfortable in the number two position. The pressure of Ferrari is a good one, actually, because I feel like we only talk about that in reference to when they're doing really well. And when they're doing badly, like, was saying earlier that they go oh yeah the championship's on we're ahead of Red Bull we go no you're not Ferrari that'd be stupid and you think what pressure could there be but it is true because mm. that denial is probably coming from the fact that there is so much pressure yeah. on them to be forming in fact when Vettel's gearbox failed in FP3 his emotion his anger let's say or frustration perhaps was really uh, grating almost because we're not used to seeing that level of frustration in Vettel in fact I think Ted Kravitz was saying he got in the garage and had to cool himself down on his own for a while mm. so I wonder how much it's going to be playing into I mean we've seen so many strategic errors from Ferrari in races in the past where they just haven't been able to grasp the race they're in 
and you wonder how much that's going to become a defining aspect of this season. Yeah, definitely, uh, because they got a long way to go, and they say our strongest track's coming towards the end of the year, so mm. maybe maybe they might be able to pick themselves up, I don't know. But more and more mistakes seem to be slipping in, and last year, Ferrari were very good at being there when Mercedes weren't. We saw mm -hmm. that in Malaysia, we saw that in Singapore, saw that in Hungary, and um, this year, yeah, I think Spain was a perfect example. That is a race that Ferrari should have easily won. They should have mm -hmm. got a one-two, and uh, they just got it all wrong and they handed it to Red Bull and it's those kind of errors that uh, are slipping in and I think Silverstone okay they made the right call with the tyres but then Seb messed it up on track mm -hmm. and uh, yeah they just need to they need to dig deep and really think about what they're doing and Seb said after the race we're not going to panic no need to turn things upside down but uh something's got to surely change there mm. whatever it is I don't know but uh, they've got to they've got to get around this because it's not looking good this season now let's talk about Pirelli because we have to that's what makes strategy <laughs> in Formula 1 but I thought it was interesting and a little bit amusing that for the first race this year they sent out their maximum tyre lap or maximum tyre life numbers along with uh, all the information pre-race for the teams and I think the number for the medium tyre was 28 laps and this is of course at least partially in response to Vettel's tyre failure last time mm. out which they you know everyone likes to say maybe they ran it too long so they're running it longer than they should have it was debris in the end but nonetheless isn't it funny that this, this very first race they put that out, I think 35 laps on the medium was the yeah. longest stint. What is, what is it with Pirelli? And we have to talk about this every so often because it happens every so often where no one really seems to respect them in Formula <laughs> 1. And as much as it worked out fine for everyone, these guidelines were very clear yeah. and no one listened to them. Yeah, basically and we see because most races they'll send out like a, a prediction and not actual mm. guidelines and they'll say oh we predict to be a two-stop race you'll go 28 laps on this time whatever and uh, those predictions always seem to be wrong I think we saw that in um, in Monaco with the ultra soft tyre as well mm -hmm. I know the conditions obviously changed with the rain but Hamilton just kept going and going and going and going and mm -hmm. uh, yeah I think teams they just got to look at their own data really and even even when they sent out that prediction you saw that the medium was 28 laps yeah. and the hard tyre was 26 laps yeah. and they said oh it's graining worse and you're thinking but that's the hard tyre it's, it's meant, it's meant yeah. to go longer um, so uh, yeah I think the team just kind of take what they're given and go about it as they do and uh, yeah Pirelli they've uh, they, they've done what they've been asked to do with the tyres all their mm. time in F1 they've done a good job in spicing up the racing um, but I don't know maybe maybe they just got to sort of leave the guidelines yeah. and say it's up to you guys and that way they yeah. won't look silly it's interesting now we're, we're up to I think the best part the part everyone wants to know it's the radio clamp down <laughs> part because it's strategic and it was exciting <laughs> Nico Rosberg, for anyone who didn't watch the race or anyone who hasn't heard about it since, had a, a near-catastrophic gearbox problem in the very last moments of the race when he was trying to catch up and maybe crash into Hamilton. Who knows? It, it happened. He called on Tim Radio. He said, uh, you know, the gearbox has some kind of problem. And they told him, first of all, to change a, a setting in the car. Uh, and then subsequently told him not to use seventh gear. Presumably there was something wrong with that. I think Paddy Lowe said there was something hydraulic wrong with the gearbox. Regardless, that's what happened and immediately raised the ire of the stewards because this year we have radio clampdowns in which there's a, I think, 31-point list in which, which details everything you can say to your driver. Anything else is, is banned. And it's been controversial over the time, but largely up to this point, the FIA and the stewards have merely been telling teams when they think they've breached the rules and asked them politely not to do it again. Ironically enough, first race that they've decided they're going to enforce these rules and tell the stewards to penalise drivers 
Rosberg has to be the one to befall this misery. And it was investigated after the race, took four hours, so you know it was a good decision. <laughs> and it was, a, it was a time penalty that dropped him to third behind Verstappen. First of all, I want to ask you, what's, what's your opinion on this radio clampdown, given A, such an integral part of the show, hearing what the drivers are giving, and B, the fact that no one really knew whether or not this was illegal or not. <laughs> is it the right rule? Well, I think that kind of sums it up, really. We, we, had a, we had a radio call, and everyone's like, maybe it's a breach. <laughs> it sounds like a breach, but uh, yeah, and there was no definitive answer for four mm-hmm. hours. And the fact that the stewards even had to take that long to look into it, it said a lot about the... Um, the complexity of it because it really came down to whether Rosberg was actually instructed to do something beyond mm-hmm. yeah and, and break the idea of the driver racing <laughs> alone and unaided and uh, the informing him that there was an issue with the gearbox and everything like that that was fine but it was when they told him to shift through seventh gear mm. that appears to have been what caught the ire of the stewards and uh, yeah I think I can understand both sides of it, and I think Mercedes's defence saying mm-hmm. it was going to be a mechanical failure, a terminal failure, we had to do it to keep him in the race. I think, mm-hmm. okay, that's totally fair enough. And ultimately, if you are giving instructions to keep a car in the race, mm-hmm. that's perfectly fine. Um, but it does open the floodgates a little bit. And Christian Horner said after the race mm-hmm. that this exactly, might become yeah. just fair game now, and that mm-hmm. you can give. A, uh, you can give information and be oh well it's going to be a terminal failure therefore we had to tell him to keep him in the rights mm-hmm. um, yeah so I think I think it's it's good that the drivers are more it's more down to them what they're doing mm-hmm. But I don't actually think we've really seen it separate the men from the boys, as it were. I think yeah. that's what a few expected. You sort of see Rosberg like 10 seconds off the pace. Like, oh, I don't know how to drive a car. And mm-hmm. it's just all his engineer. And that's not it at all. They're all very, very adept racing drivers. In their junior days, they wouldn't have had team radio or anything like that. And ultimately, these are very complex cars. And maybe, maybe that's the issue. Maybe the cars are just too complicated to drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you need someone saying this setting, that setting. Um, the incident itself, I think that the right action was taken, but it does set a very dangerous precedent mm-hmm. because look at Force India in uh, Austria. They lost Perez late on due to a brake issue. They mm-hmm. weren't able to tell him what the problem was. Yeah. Hindsight, it was a terminal failure, so they could have. But uh, at the time, obviously, you don't want to risk like a, a five or ten second penalty. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we know where the boundaries lie. It's going gonna, it's gonna to make a few think twice, I think. If we'd have known going into the race and going into the season, them saying, right, this is explicitly what is and is not allowed, and these are the penalties, then we might have been able to, uh, I don't know, have a bit more understanding. But instead, we were kind of told what a, a vague idea of what wasn't allowed, and mm-hmm. we had no idea what the penalty would be. We didn't know if Rosberg was yeah. going to get a reprimand, a grip penalty, thrown out of the race. We had no idea. Maybe we should have known that. Mm, there's this terrific grey area in the mm. rules where no one there isn't an offence linked to a penalty which I think is a major problem with the regulations that could be an entirely different story I think but what I did think was interesting in the, the breakdown of the breach because Mercedes subsequently appealed and then withdrew the appeal and said a little bit about what the decisions were which we didn't exactly see in the stewards report afterwards which was uh, first of all the gearbox broke and they were allowed to tell him that or the gearbox had a problem they were allowed to tell him that that's in the rules Subsequently, they said chassis 01. Figure that one out for yourselves. I don't know what it means. That was allowed. That was a change of setting. We know that was a change of setting. That was allowed, which is interesting considering in Europe, or Azerbaijan, I should say, uh, Hamilton wasn't allowed to be told a change of setting on his car. All of that was apparently okay here. What the problem was was telling him not to shift through seventh. 
Which is interesting because to me, not shifting through seventh, changing the settings have ultimately the same effect of not allowing the gearbox to fail. Mm. And yet we're in this situation where one's banned, one isn't. There's also, I think, I can't remember which point it was, maybe point seven, I made that up, of this list of things you're allowed to say is information on the damage of your car. What does that mean? It, yeah. It's such a grey area. <laughs> mm. And it's frustrating because as a fan of the sport, as I'm watching on the television, watching at the track, well, it's even worse if you're at the track, you don't know what's going on. If you can't say, that's what this is, this is what could happen to him if he's found guilty of it, it's a major problem for the sport. And it's not just the radio clampdown, it's things like the fact Vettel got the same penalty that Rosberg did when he pushed Hamilton off the track. Rosberg clearly had intention. In fact, he didn't deny it in Austria. Vettel this time around when he crashed into Massa in a similar looking accident, clearly understeered. I mean, for you, is there a problem of the rules not having clear punishments? There's no link to offence A to punishment B. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think obviously in some cases you have, you can have different levels of mm-hmm. of severity. For example, so you push someone off the track, five second penalty. You push like ten people off the track, mm-hmm. obviously more. Um, to use a crazy example, Maldonado um, level of penalty. <laughs> he was at the IndyCar actually this weekend. Yeah, like, I saw yeah. pictures. Yes, he's keen to get back into F one. No jet fuel fires. <laughs> I would have thought that would be an ideal opportunity, but anyway. Um, yeah, and I think I think there maybe does need to be a greater link in the regulations between offences and penalties, and mm-hmm. say even for, I don't know it's subsections of the uh, a penalty book or something like that saying that if it is this this or this offence it'll be one of these penalties and then mm. at least we have some idea of what could happen but um, yeah with Rosberg we just we didn't know we didn't know if it was allowed or not we didn't know mm. what the punishment would be and uh, then after the race I think you had a lot of people saying oh it was too lenient Horner mm. especially and you're <laughs> thinking but your drivers just gain a position out of it yeah, so yeah. it's um, it's it's interesting I think they do need to set more of a precedent I think they need to be more consistent and I think we're now inevitably going to have more radio incidents through the rest of the season Mm -hmm. it'll be interesting to see how much harsher the penalties get the more and more people abuse it Mm -hmm. or if everyone stays good then I don't know but uh, we'll see we'll have to wait and see now before we we adjourn this podcast recording because the music's getting louder (laughs) uh, next race is Hungary this is one traditionally Red Bull does reasonably well at because a bit of a twisty circuit won by Ferrari last year how do you think this is going to play out given both of those teams I mean Red Bull's already got a win this year Ferrari desperately wants a win uh, and Mercedes feels a little bit like they're being chased not to mention the fact that it's a flashpoint for Hamilton and Rosberg in the mm. past as you mentioned at the top of the show could very easily happen again yeah definitely I think it's set up for a really fascinating race probably the most open one of the season so far mm-hmm. we looked at events last season where Mercedes looked weak and Hungary Singapore they were the two main uh, main ones and uh, yeah it might come down to this happened last year where it's the first corner dash man at the front and that's that's the race decided mm-hmm. I don't know uh, but Red Bull are going to be very very strong I think the the car is always aerodynamically good always good at Hungary uh, Ricardo of course won there back in 2014 mm-hmm. and uh, Verstappen is in the form of his life and getting stronger and stronger mm-hmm. so uh, yeah I think that I think I would hasten to go for Red Bull winning oh. but that would be yeah let's only just i think it's gonna i think it's gonna be great six cars capable of winning that race and uh yeah who knows maybe kimmy might prove everyone wrong and get a win you never know wouldn't that be (laughs) to shut down the doubt as you said this week i take pleasure in disappointing people which is an incredible sentence when you think about it luke smith it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the program again thank you so much for joining thank you And 
That's all the time we have for this edition of The Strategy Report. If you want to read more about the strategy of the British Grand Prix, go to f1strategyreport.com for Jack Leslie's write-up of all the action from Great Britain. Or search for F1 Strategy Report on Facebook or Twitter. And if you want to try your hand at your own race strategies, you can download the 2016 edition of Formula Legend, the mobile game available on iOS and Android. I'm Michael Aminato. You can find me at Michael Aminato on Twitter. And be sure to join me in two weeks' time as we look back on the Hungarian Grand Prix.